and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Folkman. My guest this week is Martin Brammer. Now, Martin was the lead singer of the British group The King Gang. Their biggest hit on Billboard 100 was Motortown back in 1987. A few weeks before I reached out to Martin, I heard this on Sirius XM on the 80s on 8, and it piqued my interest back in The King Gang, so I reached out to Martin. They did have a number one hit on the Billboard dance charts with Don't Look Any Further back in 87. The King Gang was like another group, just like previous guests I've had on the show, like Love and Money, The Big Dish, River City People, who really should have been bigger than they were in the States. Following the breakup of the band, Martin continued his career as a songwriter. His songs have been recorded by Sheena Easton, Tina Turner, James Morrison, just to name a few. I really enjoyed my conversation with Martin, and I hope you do as well. So, Martin, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. No problem at all. Yeah. So, before we kind of look back, just tell me, like, how the last two years have been for you, you know, because I know we're out of the pandemic, hopefully, and everyone's has, like, a, you know, pandemic story. Like, how was your last two years? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been quite interesting because uh, just prior to the pandemic beginning, I sort of had quite a big change that uh, just at the end of that year, the Christmas, the thing that I was probably doing the most uh, in professional terms, in music terms, was uh, or the most time uh, demanding thing was, was managing a particular artist. And at that, um, and then just at that, at the turn of the year, um, that uh, that no longer seemed to be something that was a good thing to be spending my time. Even though you know I had a lot of uh, faith in the in the in the project and everything, but it just became too things weren't going quite smoothly as I'd like right. to, to be with it. And uh, so I. I thought, okay, I'm going to take a, like a month or two to sort of figure out what I'm going to do more. You know, should I go back, return more, spending more time songwriting? Or um, I don't know. And uh, actually, that's almost the end of the story because I probably still don't know, really. Yeah. So then, then pandemic came and then I didn't really have to address that anymore. Um, and... Uh, so, you know, I did the occasional songwriting Zoom kind of thing uh, now and again. But then, so then now we've, we've, we've kind of, I mean, it came in quite jarringly, didn't it? It came in yeah. as quite, wow, quite a shock. And then we've emerged out of it and it sort of slowly emerged out of it or, or uh, incrementally. And... Uh, so I've already given away the end. I still really don't know what, <laughs> what, what, what I particularly want to do. I mean, I've been yeah. doing some uh, bits of writing here, here and there. But, yeah, it's definitely changed. Um, uh, well, lots of people, but obviously specifically my view of really um, everything, I guess, you know, but yeah. certainly in a professional, uh, in a musical sense, now I, I kind of... Uh, I think I view things a little bit differently and uh, I think for a lot of people myself included I'm, I'm more kind of 
uh, maybe more philosophical about things, more looking for some sort of, I don't know, greater purpose or something yeah. like that. Right. But it's definitely had an effect uh, psychologically, for sure. Oh, I'm sure. And I'd imagine like the, everyone thinks, you know, musicians are all rich, you know, which, which isn't the case. <laughs> So, I mean, the, the last two years had to be tough for musicians who now basically the majority of their income was like touring because no one makes money on like album sales anymore. So that was like two years that all these artists had, you know, basically nothing. You know, they can do the occasional like virtual concert for a couple bucks if they were going to charge anything. But other than that, you know, they were just home like the rest of us, you know, really struggling. Yeah, I I mean, I think there's an, there's an element, well, there's definitely truth in that. But I do think, uh, because, you know, one of the, beyond songwriting, I also manage a, a band uh, right. called Band, um, that in, in, for me, I'm, I'm quite lucky. You know, I've, I've, I've been fortunate enough to have a reasonable amount of success as a, as a writer and such right. like. And actually just that, that was the further part of the story that just before the pandemic, I actually sort of sold a lot of copyrights and such like. So okay. I, I, I wasn't particularly stressed out in terms of um, uh, finances, but I think there's a, there's also a, quite a hefty slice of uh, live acts where below a certain level, Actually, I think quite a lot of people maybe maybe saved money through not having to go out the road trying right. to promote things and, and think I've got to employ five musicians, I've got to yeah. employ a sound manager, a tour manager. We got because right. yeah, for, for, for you have to be beyond a certain level, I think to for it to for it to make sense, you know, for it to make financial sense. Yeah. So yeah, I think might, but a lot of moderately established acts would definitely have suffered uh, greatly from that yeah. uh, thing. And, and I'm not even sure if things are particularly back to, I think only now maybe getting back to normal where audiences are actually prepared to not give a second thought to go and standing in a, or sitting in a, a crowded auditorium. Um, I think a but I think there's still a substantial amount of people who feel slightly freaked out by that. Yeah, I mean, it seems here now it's all back to normal. I mean, you know, right. I've been to a ton of sporting events. I saw a concert last week and everyone is, you know, they're all filled, sold, you know, sold out. Uh, right. I barely see anybody wearing masks you know, at, at these, you know, at these venues. So, I mean, it seems like things are, you know, back to normal. Or a new normal, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. I think I think we're pretty much there now, apart from yeah. the odd few who, you know, I went to a tiny little gig last week, you know, sort of 100 capacity in a little yeah. club sort of thing, which was which was full, and everybody was quite, you know, normal about it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and one of my favourite pastimes is going to... Um, you know, this is, you know, because this is England, so what do I like to do? I like to go to the pub and meet my friends. Right. Yeah. And they're pretty much back to normal in that sense as well. So, yeah, yeah that, that, that feels 
that feels good yeah right did you uh come up with any like songs in the last two years yeah i've, I've like i say I've, I've done bits and bits and pieces um the thing I, I quite like about now being off the being off the treadmill of doing you know like my the you know five days a week like three or four different song ideas a week and you know being on yeah is that now when i go to write something or fix up a a session like that um for me it's more of a it's like an an occasion in a a sense and i and so i get i think i i tend to have a better engagement and a better you know i'm probably going to turn up with quite a good idea because uh, I've had a week or two weeks to think, yeah. oh, I wonder what would be appropriate for that thing. So, you know, as an example, there's a, there's a sort of uh, upcoming artist called Mega um, here who, who's managed by the people who, where my studio is and just up from King's Cross in London. And uh, she's great, you know, and often because I've written... I don't know, like half a dozen songs with her now. Um, I've got a good feel for what she, who she is and what she wants to do, and and and, and I, I can often come up with, you know, sit down and say, oh, what about this for a, for a concept? Because because it's great if you can start with with that as an idea as opposed to just pulling something out of thin air, which is can be fun as as well, yeah. but. Um, and that that's worked quite well. A couple of those songs, are, you know, just to read the last one she released about a month ago, that was immediately synced into an episode of um, it's called Station Nineteen, offshoot of uh, Grey's Anatomy. Okay. And a previous one that I'd done that I, that we'd written together was was in Grey's Anatomy as well. Um, so uh, yeah, it's 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 enjoyable, yeah. and. Uh, and maybe now I'm thinking because so to to, to tie those things together, the, the lockdown and sort of the how that's changed the way of thinking. Now I'm I'm actually all I'm tempted to uh, I've, I've been thinking about oh why don't I just make some uh, some songs for the for the sake of it for right. for my own. That sort of uh, benefit. I'm not really, though. I mean, the way my mind works, I probably would try and think of a of what what the commercial angle would be. But generally speaking, um, I've got this idea about doing maybe like ten songs, collaborating with different people that I know either socially who are involved in music, but also through my career. Right. Like, say you know. Uh, about three weeks ago, uh, I met up with uh, David David Frank. You know the oh from the system, system. yeah, yeah. So David, I've known for nearly probably 25, 30 years or something now. Okay. Uh, well, I first met him in about eighty seven, I think, something like that. Um, and uh, we've we've sort of stayed friends. He, him, and Mick from the system were produce producing what would have been the third Kangang album that oh, never wow. that never emerged. And we've just stayed friends ever ever mm-hmm. since. 
So I'm thinking like people, you know, oh, maybe I could do a song with David, maybe yeah. I could, you know. And he was the first person I wrote a song with that got that got covered, you know, that wasn't performed by me. Yeah. First, which was a, a song uh, recorded by Sheena Easton. Oh, Time Bomb. As David often reminds me, like how, hey man, that's so ahead of its time, you know, because yeah. it's about climate change and you know, yeah, and uh, yeah, it was a dark oak. <laughs> it was, it was yeah. quite well ahead of its time. Yeah, it was. Now, how did this kind of like second, like after like the King Gang, which we'll talk about after, like dissolved? How did this kind of second career of songwriting for other artists like begin? Well. Um, the thing was, that's that's the bit I always enjoyed the most. And you know, the Kane Gang, you know, very rarely played live. We only ever did right. kind of one, one UK tour, yeah. and uh, and the bit I, I always enjoyed the most was this creating a new song out of you know starting the day, and, and uh, so. At the end of the Kane Gang, that's what I really wanted to do was to was to write songs for other people. And um, the the sort of remarkable thing that happened in my head was that um, once I began that journey, then I uh, it opened up a whole vast new range of possibilities. That because I uh, because it wasn't it didn't have to be a hundred percent about me and be truthful. About my life and such like, I then sort of found all these other opportunities that of, of ideas that I could explore that um, 
really I found quite quite exciting. Although, on the other hand, interestingly, what I've learned over the you know three decades or something sort of doing that, that inevitably there is always, however um, serious or silly the song might be, um, there's always a part of you that is in the bit that you're contributing, you know. But if you can combine that with a bit of universality, then maybe you're getting somewhere in, in terms of uh, being successful. Yeah. So now, like, with kind of collaborating with other artists for their songs, do you find that easier than just writing a song by yourself? Yeah, I've, I think I've always struggled with, I think, in the Kane Gang, we, we, we would sometimes, I mean, we'd get together to try and, complete songs but a lot of the time we'd, we'd have a certain amount of an idea or maybe no idea at all but it, a lot of that was ironically despite the fact that you were in something with two other people a lot of it seemed to be actually on on your own that I'd be trying to write lyrical ideas or you know yeah. or hear some verses something I don't know what it could be but um, and an actual fact what I've you know in the in the in the uh, intervening years in that I've now discovered actually what I really like doing is being in a room with people and throwing things backwards and forwards and being able, and the, 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 the example I always use is, is thinking about, you know, like maybe I quite enjoy doing a a quick cross crossword or something like that. I can quite enjoy doing that. Yeah. On my own, you know, as a solitary uh, activity. Right. But but if I'm hmm. sitting in a room and doing the crossword with someone else, uh, I I'm, I'm way better at it. I'm much quicker. Yeah. I'm more stimulated. There's right. some slight element of being competitive or showing off or something like that. And I think the same goes for songwriting that you're sort of striving in the room to go. Oh, no, I can. You know. I've got the solution to this. Wait, what if we say da 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 da? Yeah, and uh, I, I I just find that really um, works for me. Um, and actually, that's quite a, an interesting thing when I when I do when my mind drifts has huh. recently drifted towards the well, maybe writing songs in a sense for myself. Then I sort of trying to try to reconnect with what so I'm. And maybe I'm much better at figuring out saying what other people want to want to want to say <laughs> right. than, than myself. So I've got so much in my head. Which bit of that bit do I put down on a piece of paper or mm-hmm. turn into a song? Now, when you have an idea f- like for a song, when does the idea for the artist come in, or or does it at all, or just you have the song and then you kind of like shop it, or they come to you saying, "Hey, you wrote for this artist. Would you mind?" writing a song for me or do you have a song for me no i've i've pretty much always 99 point something percent i uh, uh really strongly believe in uh kind of tailoring what it is for that specific person and you know you're right with different artists and some of them may contribute a lot and some of them mm. may contribute technically little but the fact that they're there in the room with you and you've, yeah. you're having a sort of a, a, 
and experience them together and you, you're un, understanding who they are as a person. And, and I think it's really important to like tailor things for them so it feels like right. it's their song. And occasionally, you know, if you're lucky, I, what I was saying before about the sort of this, having something that means something to you that can apply. So it's probably I'm trying to find something in me and some part of my experience of my life at some point uh, that would coincide with them that I can figure out or oh, that so I can say that with some level of knowledge and experience and sincerity. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you get l- lucky, like one of my favourite songs that had uh, a degree of commercial success was a song I did with James Morrison called The Pieces yeah. Don't Fit Anymore. three of us writing that myself James and Steve Robson and and we got to the end of writing that and we all felt some sort of personal ownership of that song that it was saying something about 
right. them and their, their lives. And I really got, I was so excited about that. I can remember it really well of finishing the song on a Friday and going home and uh, Paul, James's manager called me up and said, how, how did it go? And I said, and it, this is not my normal, <laughs> normal thing. And I said, I said, oh yeah, well, I think, I think you're going to love this. I think it's like going to be the best song you've heard right. for, for a long time. Yeah. And absolutely, as soon as he heard it, he, he was like, "Wow, this is this is yeah. amazing." And that that song did a massive job. In it wasn't a, like, a huge hit, but it did a great song. A, uh, a lot of heavy lifting in terms of establishing him as an album yeah. and art kind of thing. And, right. uh, yeah. and Taylor Swift said it was one of her favorite songs. Apparently. Oh wow. so, I learned recently. Oh, that's good. Yeah. 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 Because he, you've, you know, worked with him, you know, after the song as well for quite a bit. So. Calm down. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. Have... Sorry, ask me again. No. Oh, no that's okay. No, I'm saying you know, even after that song, you've had some success with James, you know, writing with him as well. Yeah. So yeah. He must yeah. have, you know, liked the song enough to keep you, keep working with you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had some uh, quite good experiences. I mean, the biggest thing commercial hit uh, was uh, "Don't Let Me, Don't Let Me Go." Right. Um, um, and that 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 was you know that was again a bit of yeah. you know getting to know James well, and yeah. he'd often get slightly uncomfortable when you started to get something really good going in, in some sort of contrary way. Right. And I absolutely remember we, when we sort of laugh about it, when um, we got to this point where and myself and Steve were going, ah, we're onto something now. This, this, yeah. so, and that exact, that, exactly that point, James started to kind of, you could see him getting, Oof, I'm not sure about, sure about this. Yeah. I actually sort of stood up and I said, James, now is not the time to start having doubts about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah. You, you know, you've got to have, uh, I mean, I'm not bossy like that. Right. You know, but we, you know, we've known each other for quite a while at the time. And, uh, you know, you, you have to sort of figure out when sometimes when you see the artist but being a little bit, I don't know, uh, Having concerns, you think, no, that's the wrong concern. Honestly, this is going to be fine. Mm -hmm. You have to sort of push through that a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I think you've always got to put put them them first. 100%. Right. Yeah. Now, when you've like you know written with artists and the song comes out and it's fantastic, you sometimes kind of wish that you kept the song for yourself. <laughs> no, I've, I've never I've never really felt that. No. Um, uh, I think the only thing related to that is that you know pe people often say, um, "What are the you know what are the best songs you've ever written?" and and I think a lot of songwriters. I don't think I'm alone in this. I think a lot of songwriters would probably say, "I don't know." Quite quite a few of their favourite songs they've ever written have never been released. Uh, released. And you think you know you just kind of yeah. end. End of something you go for whatever circumstances the artist dropped or what I don't know, yeah, it didn't, you know, things way beyond your control. And uh, so, yeah, I do sometimes think that, oh, you know, I'd love to give some sort of life to 
the 10 best songs I've ever written up were never released. Right. Um, and that's, that's something that I think about and have yet to act upon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I, one of like, the highlights, I think, was the Tina Turner song, Open Arms, that, that came out. Now, with a song like that, how did Tina, like, get that song? And was that meant for her? Or was that, like, kind of, like, on the shelf somewhere? that was on the shelves we'd written that song me and my friend ben barson we'd written that song with a with a with another artist about four or five years prior to that and uh and it didn't work out with her her art her record came out or whatever um and (laughs) i mean there's a couple of funny aspects to that 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 story is that um at the time um, so all my songwriting buddies that I that I knew, we knew that there was going to be this new Tina Turner Greatest Hits album come out, right? And that they were going to strike on two or three new songs for for the album. Yeah. And they were looking for a single, and everybody I asked, you know, you'd say, "What are you up to?" Oh, I'm trying to write that Tina Turner. And I, <laughs> I was, this is, you know, I never even bothered. I just thought <laughs> this is so competitive. Everybody's yeah. trying to do this, and then. 
one night, uh, um, I'd been playing football with my friend Ben that I wrote the, wrote that song with. And uh, afterwards in the pub, he said, hey, uh, Mark, what's this, you know, what's this about uh, Tina Turner's going to record that song? Yeah. Oh, arms and I said, really? <laughs> I'm not because I didn't like the song, but yeah. it, it came completely out of the book. And it was because the a and r guy who was putting together the greatest hits, Jamie Nelson, had always remembered how good that song was. And uh, he put it forward um, for the album. So it, you know, and, huh. and became the single from you know for the for that for the launch of the greatest hits, and even even better. The the interesting thing was uh, when she she was doing the promo for the, the greatest hits. She was doing the yeah. EPK thing that the, right, yeah. the then. So the, the 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 one interview she did to for the world. She did it with uh, one of my best friends, a, a journalist called Alan Jackson. Okay. Uh, and Alan's interviewing her about the, the, the greatest hits and such like. And she said, Tina, tell me about the new, the new single then, Open Arms. So what, tell me what the story behind that was. And she said, well, uh, it's an old Al Green song. <laughs> and my, my friend uh, Alan said, are you sure about that? You know, she yeah. says, yes, it's it's an old album. So, and he said, well, actually, I, you know, I know it's it, it's not, because, you know, it's politely heard he's a very polite right. person. And he said, you know, because my friend Martin, he actually, he wrote that song. Yeah. And she, she said, oh, did he? Well, tell thank him so much because it's such a beautiful song. <laughs> so I've, I've always thought that was kind of a source of pride that yeah. Tina Turner thought one of my songs was it was an good, isn't it yeah <laughs> <laughs> that you should you should write a song about that <laughs> no that's that's great now i'm talking about the, the king gang because i um was, i guess about a month ago before you know when i reached out to you i just heard motortown on uh the satellite radio and i haven't heard the song you know in quite some time and you know it's still a fantastic song and you know it still holds up
know you had you know, a little bit of success in the, in the states with that song. You had a number one dance song with "Don't Look Any Further," which was you know, which is kind of cool. I always felt you guys should have been bigger in the states because you guys were so good. And during that stretch, I know. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, because I, you know, I I've had a lot of like artists in that same vein, like Love and Money, you know, like, like the Big Dish. You yeah, know, I had Gary Clark on, you know, from Danny Danny Wilson. And you know, yeah. every you guys should have been bigger than like you were in the states. Like, do you have any idea why it didn't? Well, like, you didn't I mean, blow up. I think one of the things was, I mean, one element I always thought was, as you you kind of identify, we had this kind of, you know, proper pop top thirty, just yeah. squeezing the top thirty thing with with. Uh, Motortown yeah. on all the AOR sort of stations and that, you know, and then we had lots of discussions about what the next single should be. And uh, the, 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 the marketing guy, who was, I think, quite new to capital in the States at the time, but like big news, it was a big investment for them. And, it, right. you know, he really said, no, don't look any further. I think that's, you know, that's the one to go. And I absolutely remember thinking, yeah, but isn't that, in a different, completely different lane, you know, isn't that, isn't that a different audience? Right. And we, uh, you know, so we were sort of putting forward, no, what about this song? That's something that would have, uh, you know, added to the AOR kind of thing. And he insisted, and of course, hmm. in one sense, he was right, because as you say, Don't Long You Further came out and was a number one dance thing.
year and a half later or something when uh, we ended up spending six months in the in New York recording the album that never came out um, but we you know we bump into people and some people say oh I love that song Motortown and then you'd say yeah did you hear Don't Look Any Further said, right. oh what's that and yeah. vice versa right. so you had all these people who only knew one so that kind of sound that seemed to be a strategic mistake to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, but partly, you know, one of our own making in the sense that, you know, we, that was almost our fault for, you know, the, obviously Motortown is channeling into these kind of Steely Dan type of, you know, right. influence in the, in the band. And then Motortown, uh, Don't Look Any Further, is, the, you know, the more R&B soul thing that we, and we, we, we tried to do, both things because that's they were the two things that we loved the most. Right. So, um, yeah, it, it, it was. Um, uh, other than that's best. That's my best ex- explanation. Yeah. No, because I mean, I, I, I still have. I, I had the cassette of you know, Miracle. You know, way back when. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, cassettes stink and you know got ruined. So I ended up buying you know buying the CD a couple couple years later, but. Is it almost like does it hurt an artist when they have multiple genres on a particular album? Because then it's hard, like you said, it was hard to kind of like market. Where it's like you want kind of like a well-rounded album. I, I feel as a fan, I always want to hear like an artist kind of branch out, and like you guys did. You have like in the R and B, you had like you know kind of the sophisticated pop sound, rather than just yeah. have ten songs being R and B or ten songs being you know that way. Yeah, I mean, I think. I think it's 
I think in the States, it's probably piling a problem upon a problem because right. you've already got the, you know, the geographical problems of, uh, uh, yeah. and the multi-format problems. You know, right. in the UK, that's, that, that was never a, a, a problem because, you know, geographically yeah. it wasn't a problem. Also, you know, the, the, the main uh, radio station that you want to be on, Radio yeah. 1, you know, would, would be, you know, that's, that's playing everything. It's just playing everything that's popular. Yeah. In the states, it's much it's, it's a much more difficult thing, and the record labels have a real difficulty in uh, or in those days, you know, maybe less so now in in the world of in the world of streaming, and maybe yeah. you know, but even so, I guess you've got you know the the streaming service algorithms are not going to be too kind to you if you yeah. split the, the multi genres kind of thing. So um, yeah, for me, artistically. Um, I think I, I just want to have, I just want to do what I want to do, you know, without yeah. right, really thinking too hard about that. But it probably is a bit of a lame decision when, uh, from a commercial uh, sense, and maybe people like you talk about, you know, I mean, you mentioned Gary Clark, who's like, who I've yeah. written numerous songs with, right? And who's like an, you know, an amazing writer. Oh, he's great, yeah. And, and, you know, but similarly, um, you know, he can work in many different areas and be, like, brilliant in lots, you know, in a right. rock area, yeah. sophisticated pop area, and a, you know, classic singer-song. He's, he's just so... And why would you want to tie yourself down to one narrow thing? I agree, in fact, yeah. In fact, it's sort of an interesting in terms of my songwriting career, you know, in, in the UK, I uh, ended up with quite a, a lot of success with a, a, an X Factor artist called Ollie Murs. Okay. Uh, and, and Ollie, and that was very, very completely out and out pop. And actually, I, I really thought this is not something that I'll, I'm going to be any good at. You know, it's too... Uh, too straight down the middle, yeah. And his the two people who who were assigned to the label, uh, Nick and Joe, who I always got on work very very well with, but I knew sort of music had quite different um, opinions or tastes or whatever yeah. to me. But were very much you know more directly pop. There wasn't really anyway. They asked me, you know, do you want to write? songs with with ollie and i said yeah okay and i wasn't i didn't think it would work out but i think the first seven songs i wrote with them across three albums yeah. they were all cut on the album and i think three of them were singles oh, okay. but, but the reason i think that worked was was because with ollie you kind of uh you knew in the whole world of music, mm -hmm. all the possibilities, that there was only a sort of quite a thin slice that would work with him and his personality right. and his musical style. So, so you were really, it was quite, and, and, and if you fell outside of that, it yeah. was quite obvious early on. So I tried to sort of apply uh, the best I could, like try it even in that sort of, what some people would dismiss as, uh, you know, more throwaway pop sort of sense in some ways. But I try to apply myself into that thing, and it, 
and it worked really well. The first song I wrote with him was a song called, wasn't it? Wasn't a single, but it was on a, his first album. And these are all like triple platinum albums, kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, it was just, it was my friend Adam. We were looking at song to, song song ideas, and he said, "I don't know. I've got this title called uh, I Blame Hollywood." And I said, "Oh, that's an interesting title." He says, "I don't know what it's about. I just thought it was a good, interesting phrase." So I said, "Oh well, you know what it could be about is it's like a guy." Who tries to live his life like it's a Hollywood movie turns out real life not like that. Yeah. So he keeps screwing things up. Okay. And that would be, you know. And uh, so we, we like the idea of that. And then on the morning we of the of the day we were going to do the writing session the first time, and I was sitting thinking, well, how can we sort of make it more interesting? And uh, I thought, oh, I know. Well, like, what if we find like a Hollywood quote? Like famous Hollywood quote, so Google's you know famous yeah, Hollywood quote, right? Not you know the most uh, allegedly the, the most famous Hollywood quote at a particular point in time was uh, from Gone with the Wind, Franklin. Franklin Dear, yeah, I don't give a damn. So the first line of the song is, "Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn," and he immediately got this flavor. So you still sort of manage this, and I I really enjoyed that. Maybe that was songwriting more, you yeah. Know, the more of doing the quick crossword version of songwriting. Right. But I really enjoyed that sort of puzzle solving uh, thing and, and, and find, uh, you know, a, a artistic reward in that. Yeah. Even if other people might be going, well, what, what you know, that's really disposable pop and we're, we're yeah. not interested. But it's kind of a fun thing to do. Right. Yeah. Has there been, has there been a, a time you're working with an artist where you just, can come up with an idea and then it just doesn't work with them? Uh, not, that's really rare. That's really rare. Unless there's just some like really bad chemistry right. in the room, you know, which, you know, occasionally, occasionally. Yeah. And odd, odd times you'll get things where, I mean, there's a classic time where, again, with my friend Adam, uh, I wrote this song with James Bay. Okay. And we were absolutely, who was actually managed by the same person who manages James Morrison, who, yeah, I, in my previous anecdote, I'd said about doing this song, I said, Paul, this is one of the greatest songs you've ever Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we, anyway, we wrote this song with James and we finished it and we were like, this is before his first album came out. So we didn't know how, quite how successful that first album was going to be. But we were absolutely convinced we have absolutely smashed this out of the park. This is amazing. And we sent off the song and just no reaction. Was. <laughs> <laughs> that was bizarre thing. Yeah. To the point where I think Paul was on holiday in France and I sort of ended up calling up. I said, what's going on? You know, don't you, can't you see this is amazing? <laughs> and he just didn't, he didn't get it, didn't no. like it. Hmm. And we were absolutely, I mean, to this day, I'm like, that could have been like the biggest song on the album. Why? Right. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so sometimes you get stuff like that. But yeah, absolutely. If you want to pursue a career in music and certainly in songwriting, you you you've got to have. Uh, you know, you, you you can't like let those things get you. To get yeah. You know? Right. You'd be absolutely screwed. You know. Yeah. I said to Ben one time, Ben, who I wrote the open arms, turn the tennis on me. As as we were coming to 
to the end of our writing relationship and uh, we're getting a bit frustrated with each other. And I said to him, you know, Ben, if, honestly, if you, if you can't take gut-wrenching disappointment on a daily basis, <laughs> go and do something different. <laughs> That's the gig. Right. Yeah. You know, even when it's going well, most of the time people are saying, no, it's no. wrong. I don't like it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, there's a saying in the States here, uh, or in terms of baseball, where if you hit 300, you go into the Hall of Fame. So, meaning the seven other times you get out. So, it's pretty yeah. much like songwriting, you know? You get yeah, absolutely. Three out of 10, that's not bad. <laughs> yeah. I heard a pod, I listened to a podcast with Egg White, who was, who had, like great success with James Morrison as well and uh, a number of other acts. And uh, Egg's a very different personality to me, but he was very, um, very honest in the, in the podcast. And, and he said, you know, even when I was at my, the, the hottest streak I had, like, you know, 90% of what I was doing was getting rejected and thrown away. Right. And that's, yeah. Yeah. That, I think that's a, for most mortals that is that is even in your in your good times that's yeah that's what goes on right now have you had a song that was kind of rejected by one artist and you used for another one um no uh, not really i can't i can't think of a good example of that and um uh i, th- I i'm gonna put that down to the fact that I do such a good job of tailoring it for a specific artist. Right. Okay. That it maybe wouldn't. I mean, there's, also, there's a song I wrote with, uh, as I say, I very rarely just write songs and then pitch them to people. But there yeah. was one song that uh, I wrote with Gary Clark uh, called uh, Funky Dory. Okay. That an artist called Rachel, St- Rachel Stevens recorded. Rachel used to be in like S Club 7 and. Uh, oh, yeah. She had quite a, she had a few big hits. My LAX was quite a big hit. Anyway, we'd written this song thinking that we'd it'd be brilliant for Britney Spears. And okay. we had quite a good relationship with the A&R guy in the US uh, because Gary and I had just done a couple of songs with the, on the Nick Carter right. solo album. And we thought, well, you know, let's write something for Britney. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, in fact, it ended up like, Gary and I had some like, almost falling out about it because I, you might say, in hindsight, stupidly played it to, uh, I mean, to uh, Rachel Stevens' label, who were 19 at the time, you know, uh, who had, like, they were massive. They were doing Pop Idol and right. all, you know, Simon yeah. Fuller. Yeah, so yeah. they were, like, big news, you know, and I played it to A&R person there, and she was, we want this, we definitely want this. And then I told Gary, and I said, oh, you know, that was a really one, you know, really good. And he was like, why have you done that? We haven't even pitched it to, like, you know, Britney yet. I was like, oh, yeah, didn't think about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, then I, and then I sort of tried to backtrack with 19, saying, yeah. uh, well, I'm not sure we can actually definitely say you can have that yet. Yeah. And... Uh, they were going, if you don't let us have it, you'll never work in this town again. Uh, you know, the kind of yeah, the usual, yeah. It was, yeah, proper, and I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's a nice, I mean, it was a horrible problem at the time, but it was a nice, I guess, because everybody wants your song. Right, yeah. 
that's a nicer place to be in. Yeah. Did uh did you and Gary ever have a good laugh about you guys pretty much had the same look? You know, in oh, like, the Motortown video, you had the you know the, the hat and stuff the, like and then like the Mary's Prayer, he had the hat. He's just, he's just doing a thing, wasn't it? Where he's, he was uh like selling one of the hats from his yeah, he used to put it on eBay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um like as a charity thing. Yeah. And we had a yeah, with case I did find the the little leather cap that I wore on top of a pops the first right. time. Um, and uh, about three or four years ago. And uh, it turns out that, you know, not metaphorically, but quite literally, my head is considerably larger than it was. <laughs> right. It just sort of sits on top of my yeah. head. So I can't. Um, I do remember sort of discussing that with with Gary. I don't know. That's that must be age thing. Maybe his school yeah. just expands. You know, right? Yeah, it fits I, my I, daughter's head pretty well. But so. oh, it's funny. Yeah, I, I have a similar problem. I'm there too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my my wife won't let me shave the whole thing, so I'm kind of yeah. keeping it as short as possible. <laughs> I I think I I'm I'm pretty certain that once I was missed you know, mistaken and in some sort of, you know, pop gossip column or something yeah. like that, that, you know, that like Gary Clark was spotted, blah, blah, blah. And it, right. It, and it, it wasn't him, it was me, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So how did the, the King Gang form? And the form, well, uh, Dave, uh, Dave Bruce and I, right. you know, we've been, we were sort of great school friends from the age of 11. And Paul, uh, was a friend of my best friend who lived down the street kind of from me. Uh, they, they, he went to a different school. Um, but we're all sort of interested in music. And so we, Dave and I sort of write, yeah. were writing songs together from maybe the age 16, 15, we used to go over. I used to go to his house and we'd like come, have these little double tape recorder things and try and bounce things together and stuff. Um, so we were firm and and spend like you know lunch breaks at school in the music room with the piano and try. So that that and but that was probably knowing Paul in the in the periphery of our social circles. Uh, and then you know we decided to get a band together with with Paul and a friend of his actually. Uh, I mean we were always forming bands and then work you know doing getting a set together after right. about six months, then we just like throw it all away and start some, start something different. And it never really felt, um, I suppose, in hindsight, it never really felt right. And then when Paul and Dave and I got together, we, you know, we basically wrote the, the song that became the first Kangang uh, record, which was a thing called Brother Brother, it was never on, a, on an album. Um, and when we wrote that, we we kind of had that feeling that oh, this is the first time we've done something that sounds like us. Obviously, it's right. us borrowing shit from other people, right? <laughs> but it but it felt like us, and it felt like it fit. So, in the, I suppose using the same metaphors I've used, me writing for other people. Yeah. First, we'd written something for ourselves. We thought, yeah, this this seems to work for yeah. us, and that was a real key to it. You know, making the 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 bands uh, work, I think, and right. 
you know, everybody talks about authenticity, don't they? And, and, and yeah. it, sometimes it's sometimes the hardest thing to find is great tip for young people is, uh, you know, finding your own authenticity, right? You know, and 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 figuring out what it is that is. I'm going to say unique about yourself, but but at the same time, what is unique about your set of influences and how they pass through you and become something um, slightly different. Yeah. You mentioned them before with Steely Dan, and you can definitely tell this like a Steely Dan, like kind of like a, you know, presence on, on the, on the first album. And the first album is great because it's, it's, it's very unusual. I think, you know, for its time, it's not like you wouldn't think it's just, you know, like a very standard, you know, pop album, you know, in, in the mid eighties, it's, 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 it definitely stands out as being like, you know, as you, you mentioned authentic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the first album, I mean, definitely stylistically, it's probably in a sense all over the place, you know, yeah. in, in ways, you know, there's a there's sort of the blue eyed soul of right. the main hit closest thing to heaven, but yeah. you've got the sort of electro kind of pop of gun law, slightly, you know, the the classic uh late on in the album track that doesn't sound like anything else uh track called creasing his hat that a lot of people would say yeah. oh i really that's the song i really like that which is right. the one song which we basically produced ourselves in a little demo studio in, okay. in newcastle and that's us just doing what the hell we yeah. want to do you know yeah i love that and, song yeah um and interestingly like actually the phrase creasing his hat was I, I think that was a that was a phrase that uh paddy McAloon had in a song and i i kind of uh, subconsciously stole, stole yeah. <laughs> right uh, he had a song something like called Vic, might have been from a song victorian settlement or something like because we were great friends and, and used to go and see yeah. them play in a little pub in durham so we knew all their uh, old stuff and were massive fans of yeah. of uh, of the band so yeah creasing's hat is definitely something that i think those three words were probably paddy's <laughs> don't know how yeah uh, you know, delighted or bitter, he was about that at the time. I have no idea, right? <laughs> then you, ha- you had a really good cover of Respect Yourself.
What'd you guys think was a couple years later when you had an actor, you know, Bruce Willis cover the song as well? Yeah, I, and there was a foot. Um, yeah, well, the sort of same thing happened with with Don't Look Any Further because then there was a big hit with a bigger hit with a, ba- a British band called M People. Then yeah, it, and so um, yeah. But what I've got with respect yourself is I have a copy of Blues and Soul. Uh, magazine okay. uh, with an interview with Mavis Staples where she says, and I heard this really great version of Respect yeah. Yourself by a British band called The Kane Gang. Oh, now, nice. so I'm going to, you know, that added to my Tina Turner, Al Green yeah, thing. Right. I think I, that's, that's something invaluable. To, oh, totally. To, in, in terms of, uh, you know, I don't know, getting away with it or doing something. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. I've actually got, uh, tell me if I'm uh, rambling on too much or boring you. And it says, no, 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 no. Oh, I, I developed, I had a theory a few years ago that I was thinking about, about the 80s and I was thinking about ourselves, obviously, and yeah. bands like you talked about, you know, with, uh, with Gary Clark or even like, those sort of early, lots of Scottish bands like uh, Orange Juice and things like yeah. that, you know, and Love and Money were a Scottish band. Yeah. Um, and there's that, that's this Celtic soul thing going on. Um, maybe less so with something like the, the Blue Nile or something like that. Uh, but anyway, my thought was, see, we were all trying to, all trying to be things that we were, that we weren't, really ultimately capable of being, you know, like Edwin Collins wasn't capable of being Al Green. Right. <laughs> but but in the falling short from that ambition, having this great ambition, and then you fall, fall a bit short, and in the falling short, you create this new thing that is actually right. special, and right. special to you, and creates it. Yeah. And that's, uh, I, I think, you know, such a great thing. And I, one of... I, th- I thought about it years later, but Steve Robson and I were, were, were asked to do some uh, writing with a, a guy called, uh, uh, a singer called John Newman. Here, I don't know if he, John's had no. some like hits. Um, and he was just, but John was into being like, you know, Otis Redding or something like that. And it, this old soul thing. Right. And that's where I said at the time, I said, you know, the thing is, Back in my day, you know, when I was being an artist, yeah. I said, this is what I think happened, and this is where the magic happened. I said, but now, if we actually sat down, because Steve and I absolutely know what we're on about, and we've got technology, and we've got an amazing studio, and yeah. John, John's a really good singer, and more, I said, we could probably do something that was kind of sounded more or less totally authentic in terms right. of the writing and the production. And I said, and, and then we'd have created something kind of utterly pointless and you know so what yeah. what is this it, it just doesn't make sense um and i'm still sort of fascinated by that idea. it's it's the the idea that's not forefront of my thinking at the moment where i'm thinking yeah. maybe i'll do some stuff with some friends like i mentioned right. David, but yeah. like Deliberately set up a situation where you, where you can't possibly achieve what you what you set out to do, <laughs> right. but that you'll come up with something really great in in that bit that you can't yeah. quite achieve. 
Um, I don't know. Maybe that sounds like you know, pretentious crap, but I, no, I not at all. I, I just think it's like a good, you know, it's like painting with your own hand or something like that, yeah. or and trying to find something. I mean, I don't even have to do that because I'm well capable of falling short in pretty much everything I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm for, just going to hope that it lands on somewhere. Interesting. Yeah, right. Hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what happened with the third album? Why wasn't that released? Well, we got, you know, we got to the point of uh, like taking shots for the album sleeve and, that, you know, mm. we got right up to that point. And uh, it was always quite a rocky relationship we had with our UK label, London Records. Mm. We, we, you know, we never... We never really saw eye to eye about so many different things, yeah. and we. But we had a much better relationship with Capitol Records when, when the, the second album came out on Capitol Records in in the US. And there's a UK guy called Simon Potts uh, who was A and R over there. Who we had a great relationship, and they were. And uh, that's what helped us, you know, have that sort of almost breakthrough with the second album. Right. Um, and. Then we, we were signed with a publishing company called SBK, which was, I can't remember which way around this became. It was like they bought CBS songs or something. Anyway, um, but they signed us for like a, quite a big publishing deal for the second record. And they were really keen on, yeah. you know, promoting us in the, in the, in the US. And we, got, um, and we got to the end of more or less the whole album recorded. And uh, but this, you know, one of the you know, massive row with London Records, and it was like, what's the point of this? We right. And SBK said, hey, you know, just look, just get out of your deal, and uh, we'll like sign you for the world, and you know, we'll. And uh, it was one of those classic things where we kind of we managed to do that. Yeah. And then we kind of got halfway across the bridge, and uh, I think I can't remember which one. It, which one it was? So it was Marty Bandia was the was the B of SBK and Charles Cottleman, it's a lawyer, I think. And anyway, one of them was like basically fully behind it. And then as we yeah. got out of this deal, and then the other one sort of said, you know what? Yeah. We spent a lot of money on those guys. You know, it's we do we really want to kind of double down on that? Yeah. And they they pulled out of the deal, and we we, we kind of never recovered from that. Yeah. Um, so. Um, yeah, that's that's show business. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. You guys, but, thought- but, you know, we we learned a lot. Yeah, through um, you know, I had that relationship with David and uh, Mick, and uh, which is sustained through through to this day. And uh, you know, great experiences. We had amazing people singing on the record. Um, yeah, it was it, it was it was definitely a good experience. Yeah. But um, yeah, sometimes you come up against those things and not right. No way back. Yeah. You guys thought about reuniting, putting music out for yourselves or no? Well, Dave and Paul have actually just met, made a record together. Okay. Which is going to come out sort of fa- fairly soon, I think. Yeah. You know, in the next few months. Um. I've always sort of had this view that I didn't really want to go back. I don't really, you know, um, I don't want to be 
a nostalgia act or, or right. things like that. I feel quite uncomfortable about that. Um, but interestingly, listening to the record that they made, which is really good, yeah, uh, you know, I, I, it was such kind of a pleasure to listen to it and genuinely go, "Wow, you've done a like, great job." It really, you know, sounds good. Right. Song, songs are great. And, uh, so I think that sort of maybe opened, you know, slightly pushed a jar or the thought in my mind of going, well, why not? I think if I did something, this vague concept that I yeah. woke up at four o'clock in the morning, and <laughs> uh, then I would definitely like to do part of that yeah. or something with, with them. Right. Uh, because, I'll, you know, um, I'm not quite ready to... Uh, you know, yeah. uh, turn up my, curl up my toe or whatever the expression is. You know, <laughs> but, uh, but it'd be quite nice to do stuff that, that yeah. is, you know, with people that I've known for a long time and people, you know, and had uh, great uh, yeah. working relationships with and do something together that, that, that yeah. uh, you know, express where you are. Right. Now. I mean, recently, fairly recently, about four years ago, um, I started this project with to my friend Adam, though I've mentioned a couple of times, and another friend Jordan Riley, who's like a young producer guy I got introduced to, who's from the northeast of England, the same okay. as me, which is why I got introduced to, him. and he's, <laughs> um, and uh, we put this little project together that was, I guess you know when chain smokers were absolutely dominating. Right. Yeah. I said, why, why don't we just do this chain smokers thing? It can be this, like, you know, we don't have a faceless sort of thing. We yeah. Just these, like, extremely, this is this, this is the concept behind it. And we're writing songs, you know, which is all about kind of, about, you know, like you, you're 22 years old and you like being really nostalgic about when you were 19 and yeah. things were <laughs> really uncomplicated, you know? Right. A girl that you should have really stuck with, but. Never yeah. work. Because it sort of turns out that, you know, when you're a lot, lot, lot older than that, certain parts of those things, those they still resonate in your yeah. life or they do, do for me. Right. So we wrote these four or five songs and we actually, you know, played them to a label, played them for two labels and the, both the labels really wanted to sign it. So we did a deal with Warner Records. Okay. So that came the project called Hazers. Uh, and the first song we released and that was a, song called Change, Changes uh, that was actually kind of number one on New Music Friday US um, when it, for a new act. That's yeah. pretty incredible. Yeah. I think it's had about 12 million streams or something like that. Um, but the interesting thing about that was, so I put these songs together. My, my elder daughter, um, who would have been about 16, 17 at the time, and she was kind of going, Dad, but why are you just doing this stuff? Because she knew I'm doing this kind of, well, the idea is, you know, you get lots of streams. And you go, she said, yeah, but why are you doing it for, you know, just like this, you know, like soulless kind of thing. And I said, well, it's not like that, Ella. No. And what I'm doing is I'm putting my life experience into something that is. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll play you the songs. And so I played her the, like, the demos of the song. And when she heard the songs, she said, oh, I, I see what you mean. Because right. you, you could hear within all this pop, you know, thing, yeah. youthful pop thing, there was actually such a lot of stuff that was about 
my life over the last, you know, five, 10 years or whatever. Wow. And, all, you know, bits of heartache and all sorts of stuff. And I think that's really an amazing thing to be able to do, to be able to put that, um, your authentic life experience into a pop song. Right. Is like, that's the way, that's fantastic, isn't it? That's yeah. kind of why we listen to pop music, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Or yeah. music per se. Doesn't right. Pop. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you remember where you were the first time you heard one of your songs on the radio? Uh, yeah, I was. Uh, we we knew that we were going to get to play on Radio One on nighttime. Radio One was one of the DJs that would play till from seven o'clock at night, and uh, the, the three of us got sort of sat in my house waiting for it to come on. And uh, I'm pretty certain it was David Kid Jensen who who, who played it in this nighttime Radio One, and uh, yeah, it was it was. It was a great feeling. Yeah. A, you know, and then we went to the pub. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> That's what English people do. Yeah. Um, what, uh, yeah. What song was it? Uh, so that would have been Brother, Brother. Okay. And uh, despite the fact that it was a quite, a, quite an indie sounding song, which is why it got played sort of nighttime, there was yeah. one DJ on morning big morning DJ on Radio 1 called Simon Bates, who sort of played it really regularly. It was never going to be a hit. Right. Quite, that was quite strange to listen to that in a, you know, very mainstream pop yeah. format and that you were hearing this, um, you know, indie-ish, indie soul thing with a yeah. sort of vaguely Bobby Womack groove sort of thing. I don't know, that sort of thing. Right. <laughs> Uh, but it was, yeah, trem- tremendous e- e- excitement. I'm not really one who gets sort of amazed, you know, I don't like yeah. to feel chest puffer. I'm not blase about it. It's a wonderful right. thing of your music playing in a store or something like that, particularly when you're away, you know, for times yeah. of, you know, being in Bloomingdale's or something like that. And right. Game. Wow, this is good, isn't it? Yeah. So <laughs> In America, and the famous song it's made. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's good. But, but I'm not, you know, I'm not really hugely motivated by that sort of thing. Right, right. That's cool. But Martin, I really appreciate your time today. I, this this was fantastic. Absolute pleasure, Noel. I hope uh, I hope I've said something uh, usable. <laughs> <laughs> And a special thanks to Martin for joining me today. You can follow him on Twitter at Martin Brammer. And if you have a suggestion, hit me up on Twitter at the first one nine, or like the page Living My Youth on Facebook. And go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes, not a problem. Show can be found on SoundCloud, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, basically wherever you can find a podcast. A new episode comes every week. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you then. <laughs>